So I'm not sure if it's because I'm a lawyer that I'm here today. Um, if it is, it's kind of harsh because Christ really isn't very kind to the lawyer in this story. Or maybe he is. I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll dig into it. Um, let's pray before we get into it. And then um, I hope we're going to have some fun this, this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have brought us all here together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ who came that we might have life. I pray, Father, that the words that I speak today would be words of life. I pray, Father, that they would not be my words. Father, that they would be yours. I ask for your grace. I ask for your mercy. I pray, Father, that you would, you would be with us and open our ears, open our eyes, that we may see and hear. In your name, amen. So before I took the Virginia State Bar, I had studied for like three or four months, and I felt like at the end of that time that I sort of personified all of Virginia law. Like if, you, if I was stuck, if someone put a knife in me, I would have spilled out Virginia code. Um, it was that sort of pervasive. That's how I felt at that time. What we take in and what we uh, chew on does come out of us. And what's so beautiful about Jesus' words is that there are so many different levels to look at it. So there's sort of a conventional view, and then there may be a little bit more of an unconventional view. I'm going to ask you to um, use your imagination and to try to set aside uh, some convention and conventional thinking about this story. In fact, I'm going to even argue that the title shouldn't be The Parable of the Good Samaritan. So my proposition for you this morning is this. Things are not always as they seem at first blush. We need to approach the Bible and our lives with fresh eyes. And we need, to be, we need to pray to be like the blind man who with mud and spittle, a little obedience and faith, and the touch of Christ was able to regain his sight. So that's my challenge for you this morning. So in that vein, I want to bring us to um, an early romantic poet by the name of William Blake. And he penned these words in the everlasting gospel, a poem of his. This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie, believe a lie when you see with, not through the eye. I want us to see with our eyes. I want us to, um, I want us to see what's really there and to sort of beg the question, to look, because if you look at the parables of Jesus, so much of those parables are about finding the thing that's lost, or finding the treasure and then selling everything to buy it. It's finding the thing that may not be so evident, yet is hidden in plain sight. So that's what I'm going to ask us to do today, to see with the eye. Excuse me, Blake's saying to see through it, so whatever Blake's telling us to do, I want us to see through our eyes, okay? You get what I'm trying to say here. Bear with me. So in that vein, I want to talk about how important stories are for us. We are peoples of stories. We tell stories to ourselves. We have family stories. And these stories, they define who we are. They define us as a culture. They define us as a people. Right? The Greeks and the Romans, they had their stories of their gods sort of toying with men. Sort of, we were the playthings of gods. You've got the Norse mythology with its dark ending, this dour people with their dark endings, Ragnarok, it's the end of all times. Those stories define them as a people. 
we have stories as a people too. In fact, Christians were historically known as people of the book because the Bible itself, this Bible filled with stories, was so important and prominent in our lives. What are some of the most important stories, I would argue, in the Bible itself are the stories that Christ himself tells us. And those require, I think, special attention. So with that being said, I'm going to talk about some conventional views of this parable of the Good Samaritan. So I can sort of speak to this and sort of say, you know, it's a story about doing kind things. It's a story about being a good neighbor, right? State. It's a story at its face about a man who's on a journey. He gets into, runs into trouble, and two guys who are representatives of a religious institution just walk on by. And then what happens? Well, we've got to look and see. Here's this other guy, this Samaritan, this low person, this outcast of society. He comes along and he shows and goes the extra mile helping this person. In fact, it's irrational what he does. Two days wages he gives the innkeeper. He says, I'll come and I'll, I'll take care of the bill. And so the story, that, the theme that we get from the story is it's simple. We need to be good neighbors. We need to be out in the world doing good things, good acts. You know, that's not necessarily a bad message to draw from the story. But I would argue that there's a deeper message going on. So let's, let's take a more edgy approach. Let's look at this story from the socio-political perspective, right? Let's kind of dig a little deeper. We can look and we can see, one, Jesus is talking to a lawyer, a lawyer of the law, of the Torah. Not a lawyer like I'm a lawyer. This guy um, is asking some pretty specific questions about how can I in inherit life? I want to have eternal life. So when Jesus is telling the story and he's talking about these, these guys who are these priests and Levites, these are guys who are a part of the religious institutions that are, if they touch something that's broken, dirty, they're unclean. They can't do their job. So for them to sort of get involved and touch a dead thing, it's like contrary to the law. So they would be violating the law, and they, they would be forbidden from even necessarily going into the temple itself. They couldn't perform their job. So in order to perform their job, in order to be obedient, they said, we're not going to even bother with dealing with this dead thing over here. He didn't even bother to check to see if it was alive. So then Jesus, in his wisdom, he shames them by telling the story about the Samaritan. Now, what are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are people who thought they were true children of Abraham. There was enmity between them and the people of Israel. They, the Israel, Israelites thought of them as being um, like dogs, curs. They treated them like that. They thought they were like bastard sons. They weren't even talk, worth talking to. So you could say that Jesus is really using this as a social construct to argue about, you know, it's the least among us who can demonstrate kindness. And we need to be open to that possibility that the kingdom of God includes all people. I still think there's something deeper going on here. I still think that there's more to it. I still think that it's not just about that. In fact, some people, if you were to say, let's find the Christ figure in the story, would look and say, no brainer, it's the good Samaritan, right? He's the one that's going the extra mile. He's the one that's putting his wealth and his life um, at stake. But I want to argue something differently. 
I'm going to argue that the Christ figure in this story is the man that's been set upon by thieves. I'm going to try to convince you that the Christ figure is the person that is broken, who is lost, who is bleeding. So let me give you some background. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He knows where he's going now. He's about a week or two, probably at least, I'd say, two weeks away from his death. I believe Jesus at this point knows that he can only find death in Jerusalem. And I believe that Jesus at this point in time in his ministry has accepted the fact that he needs to die in order for the world to have salvation. So if you've got that weighing on your mind, think about how you might approach your next couple of weeks. So this talks about a from Jerusalem to Jericho. I think that's important. If you know your geography, Jerusalem is around 2,500 uh, feet above sea level. Jericho is about 825 feet above sea level. So it's a journey down. It's a descending. Over 17 miles, he descends roughly three-fifths of a mile in elevation. So that's the story of this man who's actually walking down into this desperate, dark, desolate place. I think that's a little bit about Christ alluding to himself, saying, look at me, I'm heading towards Jerusalem. I'm heading towards this dark, desolate place. So the story itself involves this, this lawyer. And this lawyer, you know, we can sort of look at him and say he's being disingenuous or he's just like one of those others, those Herodians or one of the members of the Pharisees that he's, he's actually just trying to set Jesus up. And we can see there's some basis justification for that in the text, particularly where he's having this, this question and Jesus, it's really familiar the way that he talks to him because when I read this for the first time, I started thinking he's just talking to him like he talks to that rich young ruler that you hear about. Someone who genuinely wants to know, what's, what do I have to do? What do I got to do to get right? And so here's what he says. The, the lawyer asks the question, what shall I do to in inherit life, eternal life? Being a true rabbi, he responds with a question. What does the law say? It's also kind of a safe way to respond when you don't quite know, you're trying to feel out the other person. Is this guy trying to get me? Is he taking notes? Is he working for the priests and the high priests in, in Jerusalem? Is he trying to get my number? So what do you say it is? And you know, the lawyer knows this stuff. He responds with the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he also says to love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus' response? It's beautiful. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So what he's telling him to do is obey the law. How did that go for the last hundreds of years for Israel? Had they kept the law? The way that they treat the Samaritans is a great example of how they haven't. How do you keep the law? Have you sinned? You're probably like me, and you're not a really good keeper of the law. But 
The lawyer can't wait. He's got to get, he can't let it stop. He wants to get that other word in, right? It's like the closing argument, but he's like, I got one more thing to say, judge. He's desiring to justify himself. And he says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And that brings us into the story. So we don't know his intentions, but unlike in some of the other gospels, Jesus doesn't kind of brush him off. He engages with him. Maybe he sees in this lawyer, he sees a truth seeker. Maybe he sees someone who really does want to know. And he says, all right, I'm going to open up a little bit. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to become vulnerable to, with you. And he tells this story. This story about a man who goes from Jericho or head, heads towards Jericho. What I want you to key, on, key in here is why do I think that Jesus is talking about himself? So, if the only message we take from this parable is the you go and do likewise part, does that just reduce the gospel to doing good works? Can't you see how if you read this that way, you can say, all I've got to do is imitate the good Samaritan? That's the message? That's what Christ is telling us? You go and do likewise. Well, let's dig at that a little bit. I would argue that what this man is doing, that is the, the Samaritan, is irrational that we can't do what he did. We don't have the capacity to live or try to live to the law like he does. Either that or there's something else going on. So my question to you is, let's look at this person that has, been, has fallen among thieves. What about him sticks out to me? First off, he's on this journey. He's broken. He's outside of the camp. He's outside of Jerusalem. Who else do we know later on ends up outside of Jerusalem battered and bloody? It's Christ. Hebrews 13.13 says, bear with me as I get there. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Who is the he? It's Jesus. Who endured the reproach? It's Jesus. Why did Jesus endure that reproach? Well, because his people rejected him. John 1.11, they said no to me. They refused the Christ. So Christ is, by definition, an outcast. He's what we would describe as a loser. He's not a part of the social convention. He's the guy that's the rabble-rouser on the outside that's not a part of the convention. This guy, we don't even know if he's a Jew. We just know he's battered, and we know he's bleeding. Now, we understand why the priest and the Levite don't stop, because they're concerned about sullying themselves and becoming dirty and not being able to perform their services. But then the Samaritan stops. So why in the world would Jesus be talking about these Samaritans like this? Let's think about this historically. You might think that Jesus place for Samaritans because they're lost and outcasts. Well, let's go back in chapter 9, Luke, verse 51. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. I don't think Samaria has a special place in his heart. He just got rejected by a village that he wanted to go to. And they said to him, because you're not one of us, because you're going to Jerusalem, we reject you too. He's an outcast of outcasts, is our Christ. Then we got James and John, right? Let's bring fire down on it. You got to love those guys. And Jesus' response was, no, we're not going to destroy the village, okay? So why does the lawyer ask the question? He might have just heard Jesus talking with his, overheard Jesus' conversation. So another thing that has, with his disciples, another thing that happens is you've got the 72 have been sent out in chapter 10. 72 missionaries have been sent out. And Jesus, when he sends them out, he basically says, don't take anything, rely on the goodwill of other people when you go out. Basically, completely live in faith that I will take care of you. You're not going with your American Express card. You're going with the American or the Israeli or the Jewish faith card, the Jesus faith card, right? That's how they're going out. There are, the, there are then cities that have failed to receive his missionaries. And he basically called judgment down upon them in chapter 10, 13. And he says and concludes when he talks to them, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. If you don't accept Jesus, you don't accept God. If you don't accept God, you reject God. I don't think God's in the business of rejection. I think we're in the business of rejection. And then he talks to his disciples and he talks about how he's so thankful that, the God, that God the Father has given him these disciples and they get to see things that those in power would never get to see. It's this, it's like almost a, a pep talk for his, for his disciples. You get to be, I'm so thankful that you get to see this. You get to be with me. You get to follow me. There's this deep intimacy in his conversation. If you were a lawyer and you're someone who studied the law and you overheard that, you kind of kind of want to know what's going on here. What's, what's special about this guy? He's making these proclamations. He's saying these things. I want to ask him some questions. If we reduce the gospel to being nice, why didn't it work the first time? Niceness has nothing to do with the price of our salvation. It is the blood of Christ that has everything to do with our salvation. Hebrews says it. The Old Testament Leviticus says it. Unless there is blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is only through Christ's blood that we have access to the throne. It is only through Christ that we have access to God the Father. So, 
I would argue that the message that Jesus leaves this lawyer with is, is these words. And this is I'm borrowing from a gentleman by the name of Robert Caprone. Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. Just for this, I was reading, in my mind, I said, this is like kind of a boring story, right? Um, it's really pretty straightforward. Just kind of like the first sort of traditional ways I've explained it. It's, how do you tease that out? But the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, I'm thinking maybe the primary actor here is the guy that's really not doing much. It's the guy that's broken, right? Isn't It's through his stripes that we're healed. You ever hear that one? It's through the suffering of Christ that we have access. So, in essence, the lawyer is told by Jesus, in effect, to stop trying to live and to be willing to die. To be willing to be lost rather than to be found. To be, in short, a neighbor to the one who, in the least of his brethren, is already neighbor to the whole world of losers. I believe this is really a call, a subtle call, by Jesus to that Lord to say, if you want to inherit the kingdom, then you come and you be with me. So, why else do I think this is a different way of looking at it? Let's look at the next passage, the next story, because I think it's there for a reason. It's about Martha and Mary. It's that great story, you know? Don't be a Martha, be a Mary, right? But you know what? There are churches and all of us, we're all Marthas for the most part. So what's the story? Now, as they're on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So if there is a story about doing good works, and that's what you need to do to imitate Christ, why would you have right after that story a story that basically rebukes good works? Because it's not about good works. Because it's about relationship with Jesus. And when he gives those words to that lawyer that says, be imitators or imitate him, I think what he's really saying is, you have to align yourself in such a way with the broken of the world that you can see God in them. And if you do things out of kindness, as opposed to out of obedience to God, you miss the gospel. The thing that must drive us, that must be our focus, but always has to be the driving point, is Jesus Christ. If we do something outside of Jesus Christ, we are not, we are not building the kingdom. We're building our own kingdom. It must be through Christ. He's our focus. He's our touchstone. He's our pole star. So in this story, Martha is doing good. She's being busy. She's trying to be the one that's preparing the meal. She's the servant, right? 
And you can look at this and say, well, this defines two different types of spirituality, an active and a passive spirituality. And we can sort of look at that and say it might be two modes of looking at the world. I would argue that it's not. I would argue that Martha doesn't get it. What Martha misses is that she misses the fact that what's really important is to be in relationship with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> it makes me think about that song. Um, all we need is love, right? If you read that Romans passage, you could say, well, it's about love. Love is the fullness. Love is the consummation. No, it's not. It's only if it's through Christ. Because we can say that we love, and then our motives are impure, and we run with that, and you know what? We bring about the destruction of the world in the name of love. Hitler loved Germany. He wanted to create a pure Aryan race. And when he did that, he killed six million people. But he did it out of love. So it can't be love. That's the primary code here. It's got to be Jesus. How does it filter through Jesus? Matthew 10, 38 through 42 says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There is this emphasis on, in Jesus' teaching, particularly as he draws closer and closer to Jerusalem, about lostness, lastness, leastness. It's about the littleness. Jesus is the guy that's looking for the people at the dump. The broken things. Because you know what? People who are fixed don't really need Jesus. In fact, they really don't want Jesus. Because they got it all figured out themselves. So if there's no room in your life for Jesus, you're not going to find him. So one of the things we have to do is accept and understand and recognize our brokenness, our lostness, our leastness, our lastness. And it's only then that we're going to be able to find Jesus and have a relationship with him. It's only the extent that we can do that where we have a relationship with him. So this is a word of hope for me. Because I'm someone that wants to have my life squared away. I want you to look and think I'm pretty much squared away, that things are going good. It's all my ducks in a row. I want you to think, really, that I don't need Jesus. But if I don't have Jesus, then I don't have life. I'm lying to you and I'm lying to me. We're not saved by what Jesus taught. We're not saved by what Jesus... So, Jesus pardon me. We are not saved by what Jesus taught. We are saved by what Jesus... by Jesus himself. Dead and risen. Follow me, he said. matters. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it right so you hear it. What Jesus taught. We are saved by Jesus himself. Dead and risen. It says is the only word that finally matters. So that's why I think the Christ figure in this story is the man who's broken, is the man who's bleeding, 
is the man who receives care from an enemy of his people. And it is when we see with eyes of Christ and we align ourselves with the passion of Christ, when we look into the world with the eyes of Christ and see the passion currently living itself out, that's when we're imitators of the Samaritan. I think what the Samaritan is able to do here is ultimately see the foolishness of the gospel. I truly believe that if you are called to the gospel, you are called to suffer. You will suffer. If you have not suffered, you will. It's not like we seek it out, but it comes. And so much of what we do in the United States is seek to avoid suffering. We set up all kinds of wonderful ideas, schemes, and plans to prevent suffering. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but ultimately it is the fate of humans to suffer. And when we have spent our time and we go in front of God for that final judgment, I think in part, if we have aligned ourselves and have seen with the eyes of Christ those who have suffered and been a friend to them because of Christ, have seen Christ, then we'll be given that statement of, you are my servant, and I approve what you have done. That's what I want. I want God to bless me. They don't want to suffer. So how can we do this? I'd say it's through faith. Through faith and relationship. And I'll leave you with these words from Wendell Berry. Faith is not necessarily or not soon a resting place. Faith puts you out on a wide river in a boat, in the fog, in the dark. Even a man of faith knows that, as Burley Coulter used to say. And this is the line that really gets me. We've all got to go through enough to kill us. So I'm asking you to martyr yourself. To die for Christ that you can participate in his death and resurrection. Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ. So crucify yourself with Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.